Well, uh, as you can see, our, our message this morning as we continue in the Gospel of John is uh, words to comfort a troubled heart, and uh, we're going to pick up where we left off uh, last week um, at the end of chapter 13. Now, as you recall, uh, Judas has now left uh, in order to begin his treachery, and now Jesus was able to get alone with his disciples in order to get them ready for his departure. And, you know, in light of this news, Jesus gives his disciples their marching orders and leaves them with a new commandment that sounds uh, a lot like an old commandment to love one another, except, uh, as we talked about last week, this command has a much higher standard, and that is to love one another as Christ has loved them. And it'll be... Uh, by the consistent application of that command that not only the church in that day, but the church in every generation for every day uh, will stand out as Christ's disciples. But, you know, we ended, uh, we ended last week's message on a low note, really, as Christ challenged Peter's boast that he would lay down his life for him by predicting that he would actually deny Jesus three times before the rooster would crow. And it is, uh, it is here at the end of that uh, negative section that we uh, resume the narrative. But you, know, you understand, it's a chapter break here in 14, but you know, your mind tends to think when you see a chapter break that you're totally in a different place, right? But we're just continuing straight on from where we were at the end of 13, and there is a chapter break, but we're in the same place in the narrative here. And so uh, keep that in mind as we go forward here this morning. Uh, before we get to the passage, however, let's uh, um, take a look at the outline there. It's pretty simple here this morning. We're only looking at seven verses. The first part of the outline is the hope of heaven, which is in verses one to four. And then part two is the way to heaven in uh, verses uh, five to seven. Well, with that said, let me read today's passage for us, and then we will pray and begin our time here together. Chapter 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin our time in the word uh, this morning, we pray that your word would stand out here. We pray that the truths of your word would really jump off the page and minister to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to, to see Jesus for who he is especially the significance of what he says here in verse 6. Because us, Lord, to, to think deeply about our faith, in, a, our faith in, in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And let us leave from here, Lord, as changed people. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's jump in there at uh, verse, uh, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled... Believe in God, believe also in me. The, the way this is uh, worded in the, the Greek text assumes that the disciples' hearts are troubled and he's calling for them to stop. So we could translate it like this. We could say, stop letting your hearts be troubled. This is the same word, by the way, we've encountered this recently, that was used in reference to Jesus back in chapter 13, verse 21. And it has to do with the inner turmoil and confusion 
that is going on in the disciples' hearts. Remember, when we talk about the heart, uh, the, the heart represents your, your thoughts, your emotions, your willing, your thinking. Everything comes out of your heart. It represents who you are as a human being. Now, why would Jesus need to say this uh, to his disciples? Stop being troubled. Well, there are probably a number of reasons that can be discerned uh, from the immediate context. So let's think about why their hearts would be troubled. First of all, they're probably upset because they know that Jesus is going to depart soon and they probably wonder, what does all of that mean for, for us? I mean, think about it. These are the same men who left everything behind in order to follow Jesus. And now he tells them that he's leaving. He'll be leaving them, but you can't follow me just yet. Think of the people, you know, who mean the most to you in your life. And imagine living your life without them. You know, most, if not all of us in this room, will eventually be faced with this very thing, right? How will you go on without that person, whoever that person might be? I'm sure that's how the disciples are feeling about losing Jesus. How are we going to go on without Jesus being here with us? Secondly, they've heard that one of the inner circle 12 um, is going to betray Jesus. That's probably still ringing in their minds, and they all wondered, you know, who it was, and how is all of this drama going to play out amongst us? Thirdly, they've also heard what the Lord said about uh, Peter's three denials, and they probably wondered, what does that mean for our faith? You know, doesn't this mean that a great trial is about to take place, and Peter, one of the strongest, you know, believers amongst us, he's going to deny Christ three times. What does that mean for us in our faith? Is our faith going to fail just like Peter's faith? Lastly, what about the Messianic kingdom? You know, if Christ is the Messiah, he's supposed to set up his kingdom He's supposed to put down the rival rule of the Romans. He's supposed to judge his enemies and rule and reign over the earth with Jerusalem as his capital. Well, how is that going to happen if Jesus is going away? In fact, that's why right before Jesus left to go back to heaven, the apostles asked him about this very subject. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, you remember he said, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So what about the kingdom? When is this going to happen? You can imagine then just a whole confluence of things that are going on at the moment. Uh, How shocking all of this is for the disciples, for them to hear, and why it would result in them having a troubled heart. You know, what is Jesus' solution you know, for their troubled heart. Well, he points to the Father and himself as the object of their faith when he says to them, trust in God and trust in me. Trust in God and trust in me. You know, um, the way this is translated here in the, um, in the ESV, it's uh, um, believe in God, believe also in me. And although the word believe sounds more intellectual, like it, it draws to your mind something you think about or believe in intellectually, it has the connotation here of personal relational trust. And that's why I say trust in God, trust in me. See, it's one thing to have faith in God who is out there somewhere, right? He's, you can't see him, he's just so far out there. Uh, but it's quite another to have faith in Jesus who is standing right in front of them, who's looking them in the eye, who's talking to them face to face. Jesus brings the transcendent God near to them in himself, and he is the sure remedy for a troubled heart. You think of the implication of this command, uh, by the way, if Jesus 
were not on an equal footing with the Father. He'd be guilty of blasphemy. Let's say you come to me for counseling one day, right? And uh, similar to the uh, disciples, you say, you know, um, I'm really struggling with anxiety. I'm worried about a lot of things. There are so many things going on in my life, and I just need some help. And uh, I look at you and I say, well, here's the solution to your troubled heart. Trust in God and trust in me. What would you think about that? You know, if I'm putting myself in the same category as God, that would be the most arrogant, presumptuous sin that I could possibly commit, right? A sin, by the way, that under the old covenant law would be punishable by death, and rightly so. We don't put ourselves in that same sentence. But if Jesus speaks God's words and he does what only God himself can do, is it not appropriate that he would be trusted the same as God? So unblushingly, trust in God, trust also in me. This is not anything new, by the way. It's a theme that thoroughly pervades the Old Testament as well. So I thought I would give you uh, just a few, a, a, a taste of some of the passages that we see in the Old Testament Let's look at Psalm 27 there, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Notice the psalmist's attitude towards fear. Now, in this case, in this context, it's uh, fear towards other, others in battle, guys that are coming to, to attack us. And um, it diminishes uh, when the focus, fear diminishes when the focus is on the Lord and the security that he provides. Look there, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. You know, a stronghold, by the way, provides safety and security and protection for those who are seeking refuge. And that's how the psalmist thinks about God. So look at the parallelism. He's my light. He's my salvation. You know, well, who am I going to fear then? He's the stronghold of my life. Then who am I going to be afraid, right? So fear diminishes in the light of who God is. How about Psalm 56, verses uh, 3 to 4? When I am afraid, what does he do? I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me. You know, David, he doesn't deny being afraid, right? And we shouldn't either if we really are afraid. Only that when he is afraid, what does he do? He trusts in God, and that robs fear of its terror. It's truly, by the way, as you think about all of these passages, a learned response. It's not something that came natural to David, right? He didn't just, he wasn't this by just waking up in the morning, having this kind of response. At the, but at the moment, it's something he trained in, at the moment he felt fear, he trained himself to trust in God. Because after all, what can human beings do to him anyway? By pointing to the sovereignty of God and the fact that God is in control, his response became one of trusting in God at the moment that fear began. Here's one always good to remember, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I don't think I have to say a whole lot about that. It's it's, it's certainly self-explanatory, but again, the necessity of trusting in God. You know, there are going to be many troubled days ahead in our lives. I I hope that's not news for you. And each time, our response to trouble ought to be the same. We're to take our eyes off of ourselves and our circumstances and direct them towards the Lord uh, whom we can trust, right? That's not something that comes natural to us. It is something that must be trained in and something that we have to look um, towards the Lord for our sanctification in. Verse 2, in my father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Here's a major reason why the disciples don't need to fret and have troubled hearts. In his father's house, which is a metaphor, right, for heaven, there are many rooms contained within it, and Jesus is going first to prepare a place for each of his disciples. And so, you know, when you get there, to heaven, that is, to his father's house, you will arrive at an actual place that has been specially prepared for you. Jesus is giving comfort, right, to his disciples. He, he wants to help them to see why they don't need to be troubled. Wouldn't this be a great place to start? I'm going to prepare a place for you. Oh, not at the Ramada, right, down the street, but in, the, in my father's house. When you, when you think of these rooms that he talks about here, you should, you should think of the, what, what the, the, the imagery is because what the words are referring to are permanent places to live that are located inside the Father's house. This imagery, by the way, would have been familiar to the disciples because in those days, when a son got married, he would usually add on a dwelling unit to his Father's house in order to form an extended family, Right? So, you know, uh, Joseph gets married and then, you know, he, he starts his family and he adds on to the family home, right? And you have these big clans and so on and so forth, right? I'm sure your dads don't want you to do that, you know, for when, when you get married and all. But, uh, but these are these giant clans that would, that would form this way. And so they're thinking about that imagery. There are many rooms in the father's house. Maybe it's helpful in our day, you know, to think of, you know, heaven as a giant hotel that has many suites inside, right? There's not the Marriott, the Embassy Suites, the Hilton, you know, there's not all the, there's one, right? The Father's House Hotel. But inside the Father's House Hotel, there are many suites, many rooms inside that house. So in other words, you're not going to, you know, uh, live 10 doors down on Main Street, you turn right, you know, but you'll be all in the same place in the Father's house. And notice the, the fact that there, are, that there are many rooms. What's the point? Okay, so there are many rooms. What, what does that make a difference? Well, that means there's plenty of room for you, right? That there's no shortage of space in the Father's house. Any any a hotel room that we know of, it has limited space, right? If you, you know, don't get your booking in ahead of time, you might get shut out, you know, and there's no place for you to sleep. You might have to sleep in your car. Jesus says there are many rooms in the Father's house, meaning there's plenty of room. You won't get shut out. Isn't it comforting to know that there is room for you as well in the Father's house. You know, what if God only took the first million and then he had to put up the no occupancy sign? You know, we're 2,000 years late, right? Jesus is 2,000 years. I think the million would be filled up already, right? The Father's house is filled. There's no more place for you in heaven. What if God only took the cream of the crop? I'll take you, I'll take you, I'll take you, uh, the rest of you, uh, you know, I'll just kind of, reject you. There's only so much room in the Father's house. You know, that's not what it is. Whether you are a strong believer, whether you're a weak believer, whether you're an old believer, a new believer, you don't have to worry that there won't be room for you. All who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ can rest assured that he has prepared a place for you in his Father's house and that he will one day take you there. No one also has the power or the authority to stop him from doing so, right? The devil doesn't have the power to say, well, no, I'm, you can't go there. I'm going to keep you from going there. He doesn't have the power or the authority to do that. And another comforting thought to consider, 
once you're in the Father's house, you never have to worry about getting kicked out. You know, did you pay your bill this month? You know, uh, no, you're paid up. You never have to worry about getting kicked out. Once you're in, you're in. And your place is secure there forever. Uh, let me just say something uh, really quickly about heaven. I, I'd like to, to make a, a comment uh, that might sound kind of funny to your ears, but I think it's worth saying, and that is heaven is an actual place. Is that a revelation to anyone here, that heaven is an actual place? I say that because if you take my personal eschatology class, you'll hear me read quotes from well-known theologians who teach that heaven is not really a place, but it's more of a state or a spiritual condition. It's not really a place, it's a state, it's a spiritual condition where the presence of God is there. You know, that might sound deep to you, uh, but I'm not even sure I know what that means. What does that mean, that, it, that's, that heaven is a spiritual state? I don't know what that means. Uh, heaven is not, and I repeat not, an ethereal spiritual nothingness. It's an actual place where God resides. I think sometimes we think like that, that, you know, when we go to heaven, when we die, we go to heaven, and it's just an ethereal, like, you know, all the, everything's wavy and stuff, and, you know, there's smoke filled and everything like that, and, and, and so heaven is just a state of mind, it's not really a place. It's not true. Heaven is an actual place. Think about it. Was Jesus resurrected in a literal, physical body? Yes, he was. He was a flesh and bone a human being. Of course, God come in the flesh, but he died a literal death and he was resurrected in his physical body. You could touch him. You could put your fingers in the, you know, the nail spots and all of that. And um, he stayed with his disciples after he was resurrected. And guess where he went after that? Acts chapter one, he went back to heaven. He went to back to an actual place with an actual body, okay? So heaven is an actual place that you will go to. By the way, the, the other shoe to drop on that is the difference between if you die now, okay, and you go to heaven, you go without your body. You, you, you know, at many funerals you hear, well, he, you know, he suffered and now he has a new body. Actually, he doesn't. The body is in the ground. His soul goes to heaven. Okay, he's in a bodiless state. What we're all looking forward to is what Jesus talks about here is the resurrection. At the end of the age, when Christ comes back, he takes our physical body, resurrects us, and reunites our body and soul, just like Jesus, where we will then live on a new heaven and a new earth here. Revelation uh, 21, heaven comes down out of the sky, the new Jerusalem, and we live on a new heaven and a new earth here right in our resurrected physical bodies that's uh, the difference between heaven now so even the people in heaven our departed loved ones who love jesus they are waiting for the same thing we're all waiting for and that is the resurrection that hasn't happened yet okay so all that to say that jesus's departure should not be viewed as a bad thing, but a good thing for the sake of the disciples who are standing there troubled. The bad news is that he's, gonna, he's going away, but the good news is that he's going to prepare a place for them in his father's house, which means he will come back for them since, uh, so that they will be where he is going to be as well. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You know, if Jesus is going to prepare a place for his redeemed, doesn't this imply that he's going to come back to take them there? You know, if I tell you, hey, look, wait here, I, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm going home to prepare a room for you so that you could be... Um, a guest at my house, that you could stay at my house, isn't the implication that I'm going to come back and get you, right? That's what's going on here. Christ's second coming 
is, is just that. It's a, it's a coming back for his people. By the way, Christ's second coming occurs in two stages. Uh, the first stage is what we call the rapture, which can occur at any time. The rapture could happen even before I'm done speaking today. The Lord could come back and snatch us all away and take us uh, to heaven. It's the event where Christ returns to take his people out of the world, takes them up to heaven, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17, and we believe at IBC that it takes place sometime before the, the seven-year tribulation period begins. The second stage is after the tribulation when Christ returns with his people from heaven in order to destroy the Antichrist and his army and then to set up his prophesied messianic kingdom. Our passage here refers to the rapture when Christ returns to take his people back to heaven with him, never to be separated again. You know, often when we read about Christ's return in Scripture, it it focuses on the cosmic effects, like in Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to 27. Let me just uh, read that for you. I don't think I have that, so yeah, I don't. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So we're used to seeing passages like this that are more cosmic in nature, and it talks about the gloriousness. We made allusion to this in last week's message to his return. Yet here, Jesus focuses less on the apocalyptic details and more on the comfort that such a truth would provide for his disciples. In other words, the end result of that as opposed to the event itself. Yes, I'll be gone in a little while, Jesus tells his disciples, but I'll be back to get you and bring you where I am, and then we won't ever be separated ever again. I think it's worth mentioning that Jesus doesn't focus any attention, if you notice, on what the believer's room will look like. You know, no description about how grand, you know, like, oh, there's, you know, gold, you know, covering all the walls, and there's, a, you know, a, a great, you know, clock you know that that's on the wall or nothing like that or anything about how simple it is it's just four walls there's no rug you know it, do, it doesn't have any details about it at all it, it will be enough for believers to be there with the lord as that's where the real emphasis ought to be not on the accommodations themselves right we might think like, oh, I wonder what, it, what it's going to be like. What, is, what are the, the details? How's my suite going to be set up, right? But that's not the point. The point is you get to be there with Christ. You know, as Christians, we can debate what heaven will be like. And there may be some disagreements on this or that issue. But one thing that can be said for sure, uh, it's the place where Christ will be and the, the place where his disciples can enjoy him forever. Look at verses 4 and 5. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? There is a transition in the conversation at this point. As Jesus goes from words of comfort to now identifying the way. Jesus tells his disciples that they know the way to where he is going. But Thomas denies that they do know the way. So he tells Jesus, look, if we don't know where you're going, how in the world can we know the way to get there? So as you're reading this, who's right? Thomas, who says we don't know the way, or Jesus, who does say, who says he does know the way? Well, both to a certain extent. Thomas literally means that they don't have the road map. To where Jesus is going. Like Jesus, I have my GPS here, but I don't have the destination, so how could I follow the GPS to get to where you're going if I don't know where you're going? He's talking about a literal road map to, map to where Jesus is going and that we can't follow you without specific directions. Well, the point that Jesus is making 
is that because they have a personal relationship with him, they do know the way to where Jesus is going. Meaning, you know the way to heaven. So with this in mind, think about it, the way focuses on a way of life centered on a person, not a roadmap, right? The way is the way of life in a person, Jesus. And that brings us to verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We, we cannot exaggerate the importance of this verse and how it functions uh, in, God, in John's gospel. You know, what one commentator termed the core statement of the entire gospel. That's a pretty grand statement, isn't it? The core statement of this entire gospel. I think it's pretty important. I guess we should talk about this for a little bit then, right? Uh, this is without a doubt one of the clearest verses in all the Bible that unequivocally states that there is only one way of salvation, only one way to heaven, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not very politically correct, is it, to say these things? Notice the strong threefold claim that Jesus makes to emphasize that he is the only Savior. Notice he doesn't say, what does he not say? He doesn't say, I am a way, a truth, and a life, as if he were just one option amidst a sea of equally valid choices that lead to God. No, he doesn't say that. There is a definite article in front of each word. I am the way, the truth, and the life, emphasizing the exclusivity of each of the claims, which amounts to Jesus being the only way to salvation. Let's briefly look at each of these claims. First of all, Thomas said that he didn't know the way to where Christ was going, so Jesus replies by saying that he himself is the way, which means he is the only way to heaven. Now, I want you to think about it. This doesn't mean that Jesus simply shows them the way to heaven. Rather, it signifies that it is only through a relationship with Christ himself that a person can get to heaven and have uh, fellowship with God. There is only one way of life revealed in Scripture that leads to heaven, and it's the faith in Jesus' way of life. Isn't it interesting uh, that the first Christians were known as followers of what? The way. You remember uh, in Acts twenty four fourteen, Paul said this, but this I confess to you, that according to the, what? The way, which they call a, a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. As you think about the significance of Jesus being the way, it can only be because he is also the truth and the life. Which leads us to the next one. Jesus is the truth. The second thing that Christ says about himself is that he is the, the truth, meaning he is the very embodiment of the truth because he is the supreme revelation of God, meaning he is the standard for what is true about God. He is tr uh, the standard for the truth about the, uh, what's true in the world and everything in it. As John mentioned in the opening chapter of this gospel, he is both God come in human flesh and he is the only one qualified, in verse 18, to reveal God perfectly. And because of this, everything that Jesus says is trustworthy, which includes the saving truth of the gospel that he preached. Everything that he says concerning the way of salvation is true. It can be trusted, right? Once again, if Jesus Christ is the truth, 
it excludes any other truth claim for salvation. It's an exclusionary. It's a very narrow statement. You either believe on him and what he says to be saved, or you are not following the truth. Third thing Jesus says about himself is that he is the life. He said something similar to Martha, if you remember back in chapter 11, verse 25. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You know, this refers to the kind of life that Jesus provides in the here and now, but also extends into eternity. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Jesus is talking about the eternal life that he gives to his redeemed. When Jesus gives you eternal life, he gives you not just a quantity of life, he gives you a quality of life that begins to transform you from the inside out from the very day that you receive it. His power and his grace combine to change you so that you think and you live differently. So whereas death has to do with separation, it's a harsh word, uh, death. It means separation and separation from God. Life, on the other hand, equals communion with God. Therefore, it's accurate to say that Christ, as the possessor of this life, um, is, is the source for this life for all who come to him. There is an already not yet quality then to eternal life that Christ gives to his followers. And what I mean by that is it begins in the here and now. It's already experienced by every Christian who knows Christ, but it culminates in the resurrection. So it's a quality of life and a quantity of life. Listen to how exclusive this statement is that Jesus makes at the end of verse 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, as I think about that, the first thing might come to your mind is, wow, that's really harsh. That's really narrow. That's really uh, intense. But you know what? We ought to give thanks to God for one little word in that sentence. Except. Were it not for this one little word, the way of salvation wouldn't just be narrow, it would be non-existent. This statement limits the way to the Father's house to one and only one, through me, through Jesus. You either get there through Jesus or you don't get there at all. Again, If Jesus isn't who he says he is, if he really isn't God come in the flesh, this is the height of arrogance to make such a claim. It's utter blasphemy if he is not who he says he is. But if he is who he says he is, to reject his words is to reject the only way of salvation. Think about how everything has changed. Now that Jesus has come, the culmination or the fullness of revelation has come in the person of God's son, Jesus. You can't just believe what Abraham believed now in order to be saved. The person of Jesus and his redemptive work must be embraced by faith. We have the fullness of revelation in him. This is what the Hebrews writer was getting at in the opening verse of his epistle when he said this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, and this is a big but, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. You know, for the Jews living in Jesus' day who professed to be worshipers of the true God, Yahweh, how would you know whether they were really true believers 
or just believers in name only? Well, if they truly believed in God and believed, you know, his word, the Old Testament revelation, they would have responded rightly to the revelation of his son, Jesus, because that's exactly whom the Old Testament was pointing to. And if they rejected Jesus as God's son, it demonstrated that they didn't really know God or his word after all. So the ones who embraced him by faith were already believers in God, and they believed his very word. I think it's safe to say that our society, generally speaking, is essentially pluralistic when it comes to religious or truth claims. For example, if you've ever heard someone say something like, all roads lead to God, that's the essence of pluralism. It means that no religion has exclusive claim to the truth, and therefore Christ cannot be the only way to salvation. Right? That's what our world tells us. It is too narrow, Christianity. How dare you say that Christ is the only way? That's exclusionary by its very definition. Just to say that is offensive. So those who are sincere believers, we are told, whether they're Buddhists, whether they're Jews, whether they're Hindus, whether they're Islamic or otherwise, our society tells us they're all going to be accepted by God, right? These people that are pluralist today tell us that um, the same God is being worshipped in all these religions. It's the same God. I, I, I remember my barber told me that one time. He says, you know, I've been studying religion for quite a, quite a long time. And uh, you know what I've concluded? And uh, I, I said, uh, yeah, what have you concluded? He said, I have concluded that all the religions are essentially the same, and no matter whether you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Christian, it's all the same because we're all worshiping the same God. What do you think about that? Now, you've got to remember, he's cutting my hair when, <laughs> when he asks me that question, right? So, you know, but I look at him, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I don't want a bad haircut, but I said, <laughs> but, I, but I looked at him, and I said, I said to him, I said, well, if you want to know the truth, uh, and he asked me this because he knew I was a pastor, by the way. It didn't just come out of the you know, clear blue sky. You know. I, said, uh, uh, I said to him, if you'd like to know the truth, it's the exact opposite of what you're saying. And then I told him, uh, Christianity has a very exclusive truth claim. I probably even quoted this verse to him, and, and uh, he looked at me. I, I said a few more things, you know, but he looked at me and he said, really? I said, yeah, really. And then he went and and he actually cut my hair normally. So, you know, it, a, it, it, it comes up often amongst the people that you, even getting a haircut, the people that you meet uh, sometimes talk about this, right? It's all the same. Everyone worships the same God. Well, there's a brand called Christian inclusivism. They react against pluralism, and they say, no, Christ, Christ is the only Savior. Christ is the only Savior, and we have to preserve that truth. But, and here's another big but, sincere worshipers in other religions can be saved by Christ and his redemptive work without ever hearing about Christ or the gospel. Now, you see the difference? Christ is saving, these Christians, inclusivists, are saying, Christ is saving people in other religions. So he is the, 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 the ground of their salvation, but you just don't have to know Christ in order to be saved. So you can be saved by Christ, but not consciously know who he is. And so how do these kinds of views, whether you're talking about pluralism or inclusivism, how do these views square with what Christ says here? Does Jesus sound like a pluralist or an inclusivist? Does it sound like he's making room for worshipers of other religions to make it to heaven? Does it sound like he's presenting himself as one option out of many in the religious marketplace of ideas? Does Jesus sound like an inclusivist? Do his words sound like they suggest that someone can actually bypass a personal relationship with Jesus and still obtain salvation? Or to put it another way, can a person 
go through the Son to the Father without knowledge or awareness of the Son's existence? If you're an inclusivist, you have to answer yes to this question. But how can someone hold to this viewpoint, especially in light of some of the other I am statements in John's gospel, which emphasizes not only exclusivity, but the necessity of a personal relationship with Jesus? Well, let's see if we can answer that uh, in just a few minutes. John chapter 8, verse 12, and Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows who? Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How about John chapter 10, verse 9? I am the door. If anyone enters by who? By me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Sorry, I'm one behind, huh? Or no, I guess I didn't have that right there. Okay, well, sorry about that. Chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And for the inclusivist, what does it say? And my own know me. John chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So according to Christ himself, No one comes to the Father except through a relationship or union with himself. So Christ is making an exclusive claim concerning salvation. There is one and only one way to the Father, and that is through faith in Christ. Otherwise, you make nonsense of all of these verses. There is no hint of universalism, pluralism, inclusivism, or any other ism, for that matter, that gets you into heaven apart from Christ alone. The apostles carried on that same message as they preached the gospel following Christ's ascension back to heaven. Peter said this to the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, an exclusive claim. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This verse seen in its, uh, in its context is not very difficult to understand, is it? The Jewish leaders had rejected Christ and the way of salvation, and Peter proclaims that to do so is to reject the only way of salvation. Now, obviously, if salvation is not found in anyone else, and you either don't know or reject Christ, then what does it mean? Simply that you will not be saved. Why would anybody read these verses and conclude otherwise? And if you are honestly reading the text for what it says, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Maybe you've heard someone say something like, well, God will accept anyone no matter what it is, no matter who they are, no matter what it is they believe, so long as they are sincere about it. You know, sincerity isn't what makes us acceptable to God. Only Christ can make us acceptable to God. You could be absolutely sincere that if you jump out of an airplane and flap your arms that you will start flying. You could sincerely believe that, but you'd be sincerely wrong, and it would cost you your life if you tried it. The same is true of anyone who thinks that they can just believe whatever they want sincerely and that God will accept them on the basis of that sincerity. No, it's only on the basis of one thing, his son, Jesus Christ, that anyone will be acceptable in his sight. Our pluralistic society condemns Christianity because we claim to have an exclusive claim to the truth slandering us that we are narrow-minded, intolerant, and we're hateful of anyone who might disagree with us. And you know, for those Christians who are intolerant or hateful of others who disagree with, with our position, it's simple. You're in sin, and you need to repent. The message doesn't need to change. We do, if we're acting that way towards others. But for those of us who are true to the gospel, and the scriptures, we cannot 
compromise the truth. It's not our job. It's not our responsibility to do that. We can't widen the path that Jesus has narrowed. Jesus claims to be the only way of salvation, and if he isn't, Christianity isn't any better than any other religion or truth claim out there, right? Let's think of some things here. Leon Morris said this. He says, I am the way, said one who would shortly hang impotent on a cross. I am the truth when the lies of evil people were about to enjoy a spectacular triumph. I am the life when within a matter of hours, his corpse would be placed in a tomb. Edward Klink said this, Jesus destroys the wall that divides humanity from God, the way, denies the falsehood that distorts humanity in relation to God, the truth, and defeats the last and greatest enemy of humanity, death, the life. Let's finish this up here this morning with verse seven. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is meant in verse seven to be a positive statement. If you have come to know me, and you have, you shall also know my father as well. This unites the father and the son together as the proper object of faith for the true worshiper. Jesus is affirming their relationship to himself, that they have come to know him. And that being the case, this by extension means that they also have true knowledge of his father as well. Also, the latter part of the verse, I would retranslate it this way. Assuredly, you do know him and have seen him. As Jesus is saying these words, looking right at them. Further emphasizing their true relationship with Jesus. This is the same idea that John reproduces in his first epistle. In chapter 2, verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So to know the Son is to know the Father because they are a package deal. If you reject the Son, you reject the Father as well, disbelieving his testimony about his Son. You may be going through a difficult time in your life right now. Things may look very grim for you, but you know what? Jesus has a word for you this morning. Trust in God and trust in me. He has saved you from your sins and given you eternal life that begins in this life and will culminate in the next. Christ has prepared a place for you in his Father's house and one day, He will come back and take you there. But you know what? Until then, the road to get there may be tough along the way. It's a narrow road, but it's the only road that will get you to your desired destination. So cling to Jesus by faith, knowing that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that one day you'll spend your eternity with him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to open the word here this morning. We pray that uh, the truth about our Savior will resonate in the hearts and minds of our people this week, devotionally, and thinking about him and how they could live more uh, devotedly uh, for him this, this, this day, this month, this year. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.